Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Back in 2013, the best-selling writer, Dave Eggers, came out with very influential book, The Circle, which was his dystopian take on Silicon Valley. Dave is back now in uh, September, October, the fall of 2021, with a follow-up, a very formal follow-up in many ways to The Circle, called The Every. Uh, Dave, why the follow-up? Why, why did you feel you needed to write another book about tech? Well, I had no intentions uh, when the circle was published of uh, revisiting the topic, really. But, I, you know, I, I tend to take notes uh, on things and thoughts and uh, every so often clip an article or collect uh, something that I read. And um, I think it was maybe five, six years after the circle that I just kept on accumulating ideas and uh, things that terrified me or things that sound absurd or comic. And so finally, maybe four years ago, I thought, you know, there's, there's, everything took a turn that I didn't really anticipate. Um, and there was something, you know, there's a lot of new uh, concepts to explore. And I think that humanity evolved again in the last five, six years in a way that I didn't anticipate. And I thought that um, it was rich enough material that it, that it warranted a new novel. Tell me about that evolution. You say that humanity has evolved over the last six, five or six years. What's happened? Well, I, you know, the every, I mean, uh, the circle was really so much about our, our limitless tolerance for being surveilled, I guess. And our, and uh, and to our tolerance for having every aspect of our private lives uh, invaded, tracked, um, aggregated, sold, and and I thought that that was really sort of where uh, the internet maybe that was the end game, you know, um, and and that was you know much of the the, the uh, material in in the circle, but. The last five years, I've noticed this really different development, which is the rise of algorithms and our limitless sort of willingness to seed decision making to them. And and I think that it's I'm always more interested in how humanity reacts to technology rather than you know whatever apps are being invented or whatever um, the technology of the moment. And I think that. What's been revealed is I think people are tired of and distrustful of making decisions and of human subjectivity and fallibility. And I think we are always pursuing, whether it's real or not, the certainty of numbers. And so as we're wary of our own fallibility and the fallibility of other people, we prefer and I think increasingly are going to really prefer, I think it's just a tidal wave of um, letting machines make decisions, let algorithms determine um, uh, outcomes, uh, and, and also data, the datafication of basically every 
previously undefinable, unknowable, mysterious, or unmeasurable part of life. And so, and it all comes back to sort of the, you know, the sort of fleeting or specious, but um, nevertheless, the, the, the comfort that we feel in numbers. So whether it's um, students that no longer feel comfortable with teachers grading them, they want algorithms to be doing it, whether it's in baseball, no longer comfortable with the fallibility of umpires and we want machines to be calling balls and strikes, whether it's uh, algorithms to determine bail when it comes to the justice system. And I think increasingly you're seeing all of these signs that we're no longer comfortable with um, humans making decisions that affect us. And so we invent these algorithms that take that responsibility away from us, which I think so often we're so happy to give. And then in the interest of fairness and objectivity, people wanting things to be making these decisions to humans. And that was this development that I just sort of just saw sort of sweeping through society in the last five, six years. And I felt like it was new uh, to explore and maybe to... You know, the outcomes are sometimes terrifying and sometimes uh, comic. And so those two um, elements together are sort of the sweet spot for me. Is there something metaphysical about uh, the faith in numbers? There was some of it in the circle, but it's much more explicit in the every. Um, you know, when people guess about the companies you're writing about, the, the normal suspects, of course, are Amazon, and there's a very thinly veiled reference to Amazon in the book, and of course, Facebook and Apple. But the company that most occurs to me as being the, the model for what you write about, both in the circle and um, in the every, is Google, because of their metaphysical faith in numbers, the way they turned uh, numbers into a kind of religion is uh, do you pay attention to real companies in these books or are you just sort of browsing stuff and, and making it up as you go along you know i i don't pay close attention to any individual companies um and maybe google least of all um i have never read like a history of any one of these companies because when you know, I write, I'm trained as a journalist, and I write nonfiction, and if I start getting into that kind of research, there's just no way to write. I understand that, but the Google, Google for example, is, is named, and it's probably, uh, you'd be amused by the misspelling, but it was, it was named after a word to um, reference uh, uh, a number too long to be written. Um, so, so this this sort of fetishization of math has been around a long time, hasn't it? Yeah, although, you know, I think the manifestations of it in our daily life are not, at least for me, I don't see it coming from Google. It doesn't, Google doesn't touch me much um, in the same way that so many other um, elements of sort of the datification do. You know, whether it's attaching numerical aggregates to books and movies, and I'm sure soon paintings and poetry. Um, that kind of thing has been fascinating to me in that 
20 years ago, 30 years ago, it would just seem a total dystopian absurdity to say, oh, this movie is a 91.32. Yeah. Now it's just absolutely accepted in society. And so that means to me between that and our acceptance of every other level of sort of datification, like credit scores and, um, uh, and, you know, rating every business, uh, according to, uh, whatever, um, scale, I do think it's inevitable that we will be rating humans, um, same way because not because it's coming from the top down and there is some all powerful force for, you know, making it so like maybe the Chinese credit score, but because people like those numbers and they're comforted by knowing where they stand. And it's that kind of concept me that I'm always interested in. It sort of transcends any one tech company. Well, like, why are we so comforted by this? Oh, I'm a 90, I'm a 912.3, and I do some more good things, or if I pay my bills on time, I can get up into the 920s. You know, these, I think that we are, you know, inevitably heading this way as there is no measurement that at any resistance so far. <laughs> There's nothing that people say, well, we can't add. You know, that would be crazy. Uh, are novelists, and, writers like you, the, the sort of the natural resistance, because you write in that gray area that numbers can't reach. I mean, we can talk about the fact that the circle sold 750,000 copies, but that's, uh, I'm guessing, neither here nor there, really. Yeah. Um, what do you think about numbers as a, as a novelist? You mean applied to the, in the, in the, in the publishing? Well, I mean, the, the numbers, the, the numbers help you as a writer. You said that, that this is a new development in civilization. Um, I, I'm curious what you think as a writer about numbers and the, the way in which Civilized, digital civilization in particular, and in your fictional version, the every they've made an obsession with numbers. Everything is turned into numbers, and there's no ambivalence. There's no gray area, is there? No, I mean, I think so often these measurements are um, silly, and the and the science that used to arrive at them is bad and and um, and sloppy and. <clears throat> and it's still whoever is creating the algorithms and inserting subjectivity into them. And so the fact that we consider them objective and infallible is a part of the problem because whoever is creating these very often reckless or uh, copy algorithms themselves are, you know, they're only as good as the, the programmer and the inputs that are going into them. But so I, I find that our acceptance of these ratings and measurements and members to every part of our lives and society incredibly dangerous. And, and I, but I don't see that there's any barrier to these numbers um, being assigned to everything. And so I try to take it to its logical extreme or try to make it silly that we, you know, that there will be apps that tell us how trustworthy our friends are or <clears throat> how, uh, whether or not our parents were good parents or whether or not we enjoyed 
meal that we just ate and on what scale. And I'm trying to sort of point out how ludicrous it is to be seeking you know, these answers to things that really don't need to be quantified, that some things can be unmeasurable and that ambiguity is okay and there's something in life that should be mysterious and not assigned a number. But I think uh, most people are very comfortable with those numbers um, being assigned. There were numbers, though, in the in the circle. I remember a memorable um, scene where May Holland, who also shows up in in the in the new book, um, is having sex with one of her boyfriends, and he's a premature ejaculator, uh, and he's obsessed with getting a number from her, a score on how good he is in the bedroom, and she gives him a hundred. Um, has in your in your new book the every the circle has changed and has acquired an Amazon-like e-commerce company? Um, has it become a more dangerous company? Do you think the is the every oh, worse sure. than the circle? Um, yeah, far worse. I mean, I think the Amazon an Amazon-like company, yeah, is um, is merged with. Uh, the circle, which was more of a just strictly digital and social media and search engine company, but now they have a real-world footprint where they have planes and boats and trucks and are rolling a vast majority of e-commerce, which takes it to what I hope is a much uh, more threatening and alarming uh, level when what if our comfort level with, you know, pushing a button and ordering most of our goods and services through one company, having them arrive at our door. What if that same company is the one tracking and surveilling all of our behavior and encouraging us to stay home and never leave the house? Um, I think that those two things, those two forces sort of naturally dovetail. I'm trying to paint a picture of like, what if all under the auspices of a, you know, ostensibly progressive company interested in saving the planet from climate change says, you know what, it's better if you stay home, you don't want to have an adverse impact on the environment, um, stay home and, and we'll tell you what you can and can't do responsibly in the world. Um, we will choose goods that are and sustainably sourced. We're going to limit your choices in, in, in an effort to the planet. And meanwhile, for your own personal self-optimization, we're going to help you structure your day to accomplish all of your goals. I think, you know, I'm trying to uh, uh, take it to the logical extreme that we, we are so confronted by so many choices and people have such anxiety about the choices that they're confronting. Meanwhile, they don't want to do the wrong thing. They want to do the right thing. That more and more, I think, we're willing to see control um, whatever uh, benevolent monopoly that tells us what's best. And it started with, I had a friend who's a 
college counselor, uh, college psychologist, um, big college in the northeast, uh, sorry, um, southeast. And um, she was saying that every year her course load doubles, I mean her uh, caseload doubles, and such that she had to quit because they were just overloading her with patients at all. Um, And most of the students would come in feeling completely overwhelmed on day one. Even before classes started, they were mm-hmm. overwhelmed by all the information coming at them and all the decisions that were coming at them. And they were just riddled with anxiety yeah. about all the choices that they had to make. And I thought, well, what if a, you know, some sort of benevolent human can take those decisions off your uh, hands in the interest of at least that's that drives everything. So the issue then, Dave, is is agency, human agency, which you deal with both in the in the circle and the every. Do you think that the the main characters in your book, uh, May Holland, who's in both, um, and um, uh, the female heroine uh, in um, in uh, in the every. Uh, do they themselves have agency? Are they part of the problem? Well, Delaney Wells in the Every goes right. into... Right, Delaney Wells. Yeah, she goes into... Uh, she gets hired at the Every with the intent to bring it down from within. So she certainly has agency. Um, and she... And her friend Wes, are, their plan is to basically insert terrible ideas into the company, hoping that they'll be adopted, disseminated, and then will provoke outrage among you know, the populace as a whole. Right. As you and say, you have a beautiful way of putting it there. She was going to Snowden it or Manning it. She was, um, yeah. was going to blow the thing up from the, from the inside. Yeah, she, uh, but no matter what idea they insert into the system, nothing is too outrageous, too offensive, too invasive, or too silly to provoke any kind of outrage. And I find that in the real world, this is, you know, so rare that there's any pushback um, against any new outrage. I'm always following, you know, when... Facebook or Instagram or one of these companies introduces some new program to target, you know, younger kids under 13 who aren't supposed to have accounts. And, but they say, well, we're doing it for their own good. They're going to use our software anyway. They're going to use these apps, so we might as well make one for them. And uh, then there's usually some outcry among child psychologists and pediatricians and parents groups or um, but it will come um, for sure but that's the only sort of arena where I ever see any kind of pushback um, against the encroachment of these companies and 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 I think the uh, the tolerance that we have for 24/7 surveillance is thing that's sort of most surprising. I just saw a statistic that, you know, the pandemic accelerated so many of these trends, including um, 
a workplace surveillance and surveillance of, you know, individual screens. And because people were working at home, all of these startups either started or grew that would, you know, promise um, that they would, that, that managers and, you know, leadership of companies would be able to know what their employees were doing at all mm-hmm. times from home, whether it was just monitoring all of their, you know, knowing what was on their screen at all times, but also putting and assessing keystrokes to see how much activity was going on on a daily, you know, on an hourly basis. All of these metrics that they offered to be surveilled at that level would have been totally inconceivable, I think, 20, 30 years ago, but we've inched our way toward it. And then, then, you know, you have a force like the pandemic that just sort of accelerates it so much and I don't see any outcry you don't see well but I think that you you as always Dave you capture the zeitgeist your your book in 2013 um the circle was one of the first real serious critiques of Silicon Valley and digital culture and what you're doing in 2021 is making resistance to digital the heart of the new novel. And when you talk to a lot of young people, um, the idea of resisting digital is, uh, is I wouldn't say fashionable, but much more attractive than it was in 2013. Um, I, I'm guessing that you wouldn't have written just another critique of, of digital culture. This is a book about resistance. This is a book about seizing back agency isn't it well it is um, or trying to at least trying <laughs> a few people trying and and even then um the it is not mass resistance um although you know there's a there's a there's a group in the uh the every they're known as frogs and Sort of a, an area of San Francisco that's carved out that is surveillance free and right. digital, and it, it's near where I live. Actually, it's the Haight Ashbury, right? Well, no. In this, it's sort of um, where uh, the mission meets uh, South of Market, so it's sort of right. under the 101, 80 there, and um, so it's just like maybe six square blocks and mm. um, off of South Van S, and it's. I, uh, and, you know, and, and it's just a, a little tiny parcel that, um, you know, is where everything otherwise forbidden is, is permitted. And, uh, it's like a little bit of the old San Francisco, I guess, but it's, it takes a very uh, specific sort of person to want to live there or live as a trog because, it's considered unsafe and un- unsanitary and all of these other things. And, uh, you know, neighborhood by neighborhood and block by block, um, homes in the city and elsewhere in the world are required to have surveillance cameras. And any, anyone that isn't, doesn't have cameras facing inward and outward is considered or presumed to be doing something illicit or something dangerous inside. And I think, we uh, are going that way <clears throat> with the, the saturation of ring cameras. and mm. uh, It's all in the interest of safety. And I think that's the thing that 
is maybe the scariest and maybe the you know the most unstoppable force is that anything that makes us safer um, will be adopted, and so that's why there are ring cameras, you know, saturating uh, this country and others. That's why, you know, we're photographed 238 times a week in, you know, in a given American city at minimum. Mm. And actually, uh, America is not as bad as other parts of the world. The, oh, um, yeah. the, the like, uh, many times more. Yeah, the, the sociologist, Dave, uh, I'm sure you, you've read her book, Shoshana Zuboff calls this the age of surveillance capitalism. At the end yeah. of the every, I'm not going to give away the plot, but it's, I read it as if you, you didn't see a huge difference between what we might think of as surveillance capitalism in the United States and the centralized authoritarian cab surveillance system uh, in China. Um, do you think that China and America are kind of merging in this obsession with surveillance and cameras and everyone watching and everyone being rated in numerical terms according to their conformity? Yeah, I don't see a lot of difference. Um, there, uh, you know, in China, you have it for the most part, it's a government program to install billions of cameras and, and, uh, but you don't see much resistance there. And we have billions of cameras in the U.S. too, even though it's more of a patchwork system undertaken by individuals, you know, whether it's a shopkeeper or a home owner. Um, it's all the same motivation. Cameras make us seem safer. We can track our neighbors and intruders. And, um, and if something untoward happens, we might be able to find the perpetrator quicker. And so, you know, I posit in the every that inevitable that surveillance cameras will be required in homes and will be accessed at local law enforcement. And, you know, there's 10 million cases of domestic violence every year in the U.S., right? That's the, at least the rough estimate. So if you were able to say, you know what, you don't want a surveillance camera in your home, that it implies that you plan to commit crimes against your family or, you know, cohabitants. So uh, what are you hiding? And if we were to install these cameras, certainly it would reduce domestic violence to some degree. So how can you argue against it? It's really hard in a way. And so we've seen that saturation of surveillance, both mutual surveillance, whether it's filming each other on phones and uh, catching each other on our you know, home surveillance cameras outside, um, or whether it's government um, surveillance, none of it really provokes the outrage. And in part, because there is the perception and in some cases reality that it's uh, preventing crime, making safer. So there's there's really no level of surveillance that could be resisted that makes people feel. So I don't know how anyone could say that the home will always be a bastion of privacy and that surveillance uh, culture that pervades every other aspect of people stop 
the front door. I don't know how you could argue that point. There's no evidence that we, that it will stop. Sort of have to get used to the idea that that's the final battle. And I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm really uh, not very optimistic that we'll be able to fight off that and say we are have a right to privacy in the home, even if it means uh, guarantee of more times domestic violence within the home. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, Dave. Do you think it? Do you think some of your characters, your fictional characters, a Delaney Wells, for example, or certainly a May Holland, do they have a right to privacy when it comes to you as a novelist? <laughs> the characters I created? Yes. Because uh, you really reveal, you're, you're very good at telling the truth. I mean, that's why you're such a successful and revered novelist. You're very good at telling the truth about these people. There's nothing private about them. You, 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 in, in many ways, I wouldn't say humiliate them, but you, you're not shy to reveal what they think and who they are, all, all warts and all. Well, I don't know how you write a novel without, <laughs> without invading the privacy of your characters. That's what a novel is. It's, uh, that's the entire purpose, um, is to live within mind and skin of another human right even if they're made up so what happens if you had some sort of clever clogged silicon valley idealist on this call and said well all we're doing is empowering everyone to become novelists uh how, how? uh well because everything's revealed so you get to see everything about everyone i mean that it it, it could have been a scene in one of your books in the circle or the every yeah, I well, I think the novel is a very unique entity. I I, I think I know what you're saying. Um, there, I think it would more be uh, applicable to what we were talking about with journalism. I think that um, and one of the reasons why I feel like journalism is threatened is that people less and less trust intermediaries. You've written about this, you know. They yes, yes. Experts and and interpreters, and um, they want the unfiltered, direct uh, line, whether it's just somebody talking to, into the camera or somebody filming a crime in progress. And so having somebody tell you afterward what happened doesn't feel as authentic Yeah, with each successive generation. And that's why I think of journalism is really under threat and it's going to be more so every year because um, there's again that distrust of the subjective and well how do I know that really happened the way you said it give it to me of course give it to me just the raw video or the raw um, audio um, I think we're going to see more and more of that and less and less of somebody stepping in to interpret you mentioned the A word, Dave, um, uh, authentic. Why is there such an appetite, a thirst for this concept, this word we call authentic? I always think whenever anyone uses the word, by definition, they're inauthentic. But I don't even know what the word means. Yeah, I, I think it's a fraught word and loaded and, um, and you know, different ways but i think 
I think raw is another way to think about it. Um, When I, you know, when you see how um, teenagers, for example, get their information, it's really different. They're not going directly to the New York Times to see some reasoned and well-researched, you know, thought piece about, you know, what's going on with uh, the housing crisis. They're, they would first go to, you know, TikTok and somebody showing, you know, their personal experience with eviction, and and um, they're going to first, second, and third go to those first-hand accounts and really small bits of them or maybe a YouTube video cut together, somebody's experience. And, um, and there is a real value to that you know, to show sort of here's what a police stop really looks like if you're a person of color in Mississippi in 2021. Those sorts of videos are incredibly powerful and needed. But um, I think that we've got to do everything we can possibly do to educate young people. That's part of the picture. We also need interpretation and we need expertise. And some of this, a lot of time, um, to do, to execute, to create, and to read. And I think that one of the more comical elements of our society now is that most websites that I come across now tell you before you start reading how long it's going to take you to read something. Yeah. And it's such an infantilization. Where <laughs> it's, just saying, it's absurd, isn't it? If you have 4.3 minutes, you can get through this. We're not going to waste your time more than that. And, but again, it's that sort of reliance on data. And so, uh, I think the infantilization of humanity is something that just drives me bananas, although, you know, it makes for good comedy, whether it's... Yeah, and, the, and it's a very funny book. I mean, there's some fantastic lines. I loved, um, hold on, I made some notes here. There was, there was one brilliant line about... That every becomes everything. I mean, obviously, by definition, it's everything. And and you say would make the Dutch East India Company look like a lemonade stand. That was brilliant. There's lots of hilarious. Did you ever? Were you ever concerned that this is an obviously an incredibly serious subject? So it's tragic. It's dystopian. But at the same time, it's kind of funny, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's those are my favorite books. Um, you know, I think the best book to come out of World War II is still Catch-22. Yeah. It's, uh, a highly comic and just absurd book all the way through, but it manages to also be maybe the most devastating critique of... Uh, yeah, or on the Holocaust, This Way to the Gas Chambers, ladies and gentlemen, by Polish writer Borowski uh, is, a, is a similar one. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... I, it's it's not always for everybody, and it's certainly not something that um, uh, always is the is the first and best form. But I think there's something uniquely uh, and inherently comic about Silicon Valley and, and our approach to technology. Um, that uh, you know whether it's you know measuring whether or not you had a good orgasm and um, all of these things exist or will exist in some form. And so, like you said, when Francis insisted on being 
uh, raided after his sexual encounter with May. I mean, that's not something that, I mean, that, that certainly happens already in some form. And I think that uh, all of this is just, uh, just have to look for the comedy. Um, and, yeah. and I love when comedy and terror exist, you know, uh, on either sides of the coin, because uh, you some reason that's actually that's just the way I see the world. Uh, I I'm horrified every day and dismayed every day by every new intrusion or outrage. But um, first thing you do is you have to laugh at where we got here and, and how silly we look so often. But uh, it just happens to be the the best way I know to express. Rage, I guess. <laughs> the book is about resistance. It's a treatise on a, a sort of a, a tragic comedy on resisting the inevitable, the the ubiquitous, the every. Uh, and you're also resisting as a writer and as a publisher because you're doing some interesting things. It's no coincidence that one of the companies mocked in this book is is Amazon, although it's a kind of post-Amazon Amazon, an Amazon which has gone downstream and has lost its, lost its efficiencies. Uh, but the book itself and your strategy for publishing it um, is an act of resistance against Amazon and, and the nature of their uh, power in, in digital publishing, isn't it, Dave? Well, it's, you know, we've been fighting or trying to work around them or either independent bookstores over Amazon for 25 years since McSweeney started in 1998. Um, and back in 2002, we were concerned about the growing power of Amazon in the publishing world. And so we put out my second book, Shall Know Her Velocity, was not available uh, on Amazon. And it was really hard to do then, and it's much harder to do now to avoid them because their tentacles are everywhere. Um, but you can do it. You know, it takes a lot of effort, and uh, they have a huge market share, but um, we're only distributing the hardcover of the book through independent bookstores. So we're going to uh, have to be incredibly vigilant, even down to, like, having people at the warehouse monitor where the books are going and making <laughs> was it hard to convince uh, your uh, your 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 traditional publisher because this is sort of it's first published going to be available through McSweeney's and then later uh, vintage was it hard convincing them um not when we it was a long conversation let's say <laughs> it was a lot of talking to work it <laughs> That's out a polite way um, of saying it was a huge row right well, no, you know, it, it was always really polite. There's a executive there named Reagan Arthur who was just open and candid throughout, and we we were on board. I mean, it was really more about logistics, like how are we going to do this and who does what and when are we going to do what. It was They never said no. Um, but, um, you know, it, it started with, like, you know, could it could not publish this book without Amazon. Well, no, you know, they, they have arrangements such that they can't do that. So, and then, you know, another distributor that after we decided to publish it through McSweeney, another distributor we realized couldn't 
distribute the book because they have an arrangement with Amazon such that anything they put out has to go onto Amazon. So it was like just continually running into these uh, alliances. And that, that Do you think Amazon care about, yeah. are you uh, spitting into the wind here or, 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 or do you think that initiatives like this by writers like yourself, who are pretty powerful and popular, do you think it can make a difference? Um, I don't think they care at all because um, it's not even, uh, it wouldn't rise to the level of even a pea shooter against Battleship, what we're doing, but um, it matters to the independent bookstores, I think. Um, so that's what we have to focus um, on is does it make a difference in terms of bringing a few extra people through the doors of uh, independent bookstore in Sioux Falls, you know, well, maybe, you know, maybe there's five, 10 people out there that, uh, that come into the, the independent bookstore because they can't get the book anywhere else. You know, that's all we can really focus on is like, does it make a difference there? Yeah, probably. And and, the, and you're doing a kind of Apple strategy that the novel's going to have 32 different covers. Uh, I don't know whether there'll well, be different color covers, but uh, yeah, we're up to uh, we're up to fifty six now. Oh wow! So is there so, going to be different colors or different artwork on the covers? Well, so there's one cover that has sixteen, I think, variations on the same design, and then there are just a number of other. Um, uh, we're just finishing one today that'll come out in maybe November. Um, and we're going to keep on iterating throughout. Like the book will be in hardcover as long as people want it. So for years, we hope. And um, we'll just keep on adding jackets with basically a thousand copies per jacket. And um, just because we, we can, um, at least for, in, for the time being, we still have that ability to do it. You wouldn't be able to do it with Amazon. You wouldn't be able to do it with any other large conglomerate or Monopoly or probably even Knopf, you know, that ship has sailed when it comes to the larger companies because Amazon, they, uh, if you have a number of different jackets, it, it, it basically just jams the system and they don't know how, how to do it. But if it's a, a small bookstore owner in Iowa city, he can open a box of books and on the shelf and he, nobody's going to stop him. How bad is Amazon for the publishing business, Dave, and for writers, particularly aspiring writers, perhaps not as well published as yourself? Um, I think it's uh, catastrophic. Uh, I think when they had a smaller market share, there was a place where it could be um, maybe uh, less destructive. Like, let's say you're 100 miles from us in the bookstore you know you got nothing else and you know there's huge stretches of the u.s where there aren't stores um and i've spent a lot of time in these stretches where i'm like i don't know where you would get a book if you or you'd have to order it on you know my mind somewhere and so for a lot of people it's a comfort and it's you know a way to the main way that they're connected um but when their market share passes 50 percent creeps into the 60s and keeps gaining every year um, it goes beyond level 
it monopoly or just a convenience. It's when they control, when a tech company, and Amazon is definitely not a book company, they are a tech company run by algorithms, um, when they control the book industry with, uh, you know, a dominant market share, it's going to be a cataclysm. You know, they do not care um, about books. They predatory pricing is completely illegal, you know, it's it should have provoked antitrust action decades ago. Um, the fact that they're able to lose money on every book sale is just totally unethical um, in an effort to drive away competition. That's also what they should be doing. So I think um, I think that publishing and books, they have to be the people involved in printing the of books, what's published, these people have to care about books, um, and Amazon is not. So when they're treated like widgets and quality has no, and I think it's really dangerous. You're seeing it right now when you try to order, you know, if you're trying to order Type E by Herman Melville, um, the first 40 entries would be knockoffs and Xeroxed copies and legs that... Uh, of which are true to the text or anything. You can't find what's real anymore, especially when it comes to older books. Um, it's just a wasteland. That is a function of the fact that there's more, that it's algorithms and a real edition of Melville from uh, a Xerox copy, uh, asterisk. So any more market share uh, with every every new percentage of it, it's more and more dangerous. Um, and I don't think that we of how bad it will get uh, if they get to control the marketplace. Well, I'm thrilled, uh, Dave Eggers, that you have the new book out, The Every, which is in, in many ways an attack, I think, on as much on Amazon and Facebook and Google and perhaps even Apple as, 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 as all these big tech companies in Silicon Valley. It's a wonderful novel. It's profound. It's tragic. It's dystopian. It's scary. It's inspiring. And it's also extremely funny. Congratulations on the book, Dave. And I hope we're both San Francisco people. I hope when uh, COVID goes away, hopefully it will go away, we'll get a chance to do this live. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been a pleasure.